Good morning again. Back in 2007, the first generation really of smartphones um, began to be produced. And with those came this incredible feature called GPS navigation. And we've had GPS navigation for a while, but this was the time that it was integrated into your phone. And so I bought my very first smartphone back in 2007. It was a choice between the HTC Tilt and the iPhone. And I thought, well, that iPhone thing is a ridiculous idea that will never catch on. And so I went with the HTC Tilt. I repented the next year and bought my first iPhone. Um, and have been iPhone since. But right after I got the phone, I decided I was going to try out the GPS. My wife and I were going to Dallas for dinner. And growing up in the Metroplex, I knew my way around the Metroplex pretty well. But I didn't necessarily know how to get to the restaurant we were going to. And so as we were leaving Cleburne, heading towards downtown Dallas, I plugged in the address on my phone and began to listen to someone narrate the directions to me. And as I approached 35W, which will take you into Fort Worth, it began telling me, take a left and head south on 35W. And if you know anything about the geography around Dallas, Fort Worth, and Cleburne, That is the worst way that you can go because it takes you the long way around on I-20. And so I thought, well, surely it's just making a mistake. This technology is so new, it doesn't know what it's talking about. And so I continued on, and the very, very first light I came to, my phone interrupted my conversation with my wife and said, recalculating, make a U-turn. Seriously, it does not know what it's talking about. And so I continued on in the next light, recalculating, make a U-turn. And after about the third light we came to where it said, recalculating, make a U-turn, I decided this technology was a terrible idea, and I turned off the GPS navigation on my phone. And my wife and I continued our conversation on our drive to dinner in downtown Dallas. Until we were greeted by a beautiful stream of bright red lights. And our speed went from 60 miles an hour to 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10 to a complete stop. See, there was an accident ahead of us that completely shut down both directions of the highway. And I began searching on my phone for alternative routes because evidently my phone knew something I did not. That while I understood the geography and the roads and the highways, there were still some things I was not privileged to know ahead of time. And I chose my own path 
to get to the place that I was trying to go. And we eventually made it as a road opened up and we were able to squeeze through on the shoulder. But we were slightly late for our reservations. This morning, I want to just simply ask a couple of questions of you. And we've asked these in similar fashion before, but why are you here? And where are you going? And I don't mean the smart aleck answer, well, it's, you know, 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, I'm at church, and after we get done, we're going to go eat at Mercado's. But, and you have to listen, I know I mentioned food, you can't start thinking about food the whole time. But literally, why are you here? Why were you created? What is your purpose in life? Where are you going? And I don't mean just simply right after we get done, but what direction are you moving in? See, I want to begin with a premise this morning that if you don't know where you are going, you will not know how to get there. I know, that's brilliant, right? Like, worth the price of admission. Gee, Gary, that's great. Um, If you do not know where you are going, you will not know how to get there. And as simplistic as that sounds... It's something that we often forget. And Paul is in a place in Ephesians as he's writing this church that he is reminding this church why they are here, why he is here, and where they are going. So open up to Ephesians 3 with me. Ephesians 3. And we're going to start in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So, first of all, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Very literally, Paul is writing this as a prisoner. But not literally as a prisoner for Christ. He's a prisoner of the Roman government and of Caesar. And he is in a prison cell because he is going to Gentiles and telling them that God loves them and God wants them to be a part of what he is doing in the world. And because of this message, they have taken Paul and they have put him in a prison cell and they are going to try to execute him. He is there because he is following Jesus. And so literally he says that even though it looks like I am a prisoner of Caesar, I am really a prisoner of of Jesus. Because if I renounce this whole Jesus thing, 
they will let me out. I'm not here because of them. I'm here because of my faith in Christ. And then he moves on and he throws a word out there that I I have to tell you, I've never really thought about when I think of grace. In verse 2, he said, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Have you ever thought of grace as something to be stewarded? Something that you are a steward of. Because steward, just by definition, means that someone has given you something that you are to manage, that you are to take care of. And because of what it implies, it also, there's this understanding that what you have been given to manage or to steward is something that you have temporarily. And it's something to which you are accountable. Now, grace given to us temporarily sounds really strange. But in the sense that Paul's talking is something that you can give away, there's a very temporary sense to it. Because the only way that you can give it away is if there is still breath in your lungs. Like there is a very finite time that you have to give that grace away that you have been given. And because you are a steward of it, you are accountable in how you give it. So Paul says, I am a steward of God's grace. And I have been given this grace that I may give it to you. What if, what if we were to take that gift and bury it and do nothing with it? I mean, Jesus tells the story of the three men that were given these talents. And two of them took them and doubled what they had. And yet one of them took it and buried it so that when the master returned, he could say, hey, look, look what I saved for you. I, I was afraid that if I put it out there, I might lose it. What a travesty. To be given a gift. A gift of grace. And grace is one of those words that we just kind of throw around, but grace is literally a gift. And its source and origin is beyond you, and it flows to you, and it's simply something that you open up and receive. You had nothing to do with it. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was just simply given. And so Paul says, this grace that I've been given... 
this grace that he's given not only to Jew but to Gentile, this grace I am a steward of. One of the things we've been talking about as a church is living out this vision in our church here and hopefully moving people to a place where we are engaging the world around us with the gospel of Christ. That we are stewarding this grace by imparting it to other people. And we said that we want to exalt Christ because when we see him with our eyes, it changes our hearts. And as it changes our hearts, it changes the way that we interact with one another. And as it changes the way that we interact with one another, it opens our hands to give it gracefully and freely to those who are around us in order that they may see Christ as we have seen him. And I've had a lot of conversations with people. Some of our shepherds have had conversations with people where people are saying, well, okay, yeah, that's great, but what is our vision? Okay, this is it. We want to exalt. We want to encourage. We want to engage. And people are asking, well, yeah, but is there something else behind it? Is there a hidden agenda? Is there... Yes, there's a hidden agenda. Okay, here it is. We want you to engage the world for Jesus Christ. Listen, as a vision team, when we were spending the last year, we talked very little about what happens inside this room on Sunday morning for one hour. We talked extensively about how we as a church take the gospel outside to this world. And so if there are questions, well, are, are we going to talk about instrumental music? Are we going to talk about women's roles? Listen, we aren't talking about any of those things, and we will not talk about people who are. But what we are talking about here is how we move our church from people who simply have seen Christ and are loving one another to people who are going out and engaging this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe it has the power of salvation for the world. Okay. Are we clear on the vision? Like, are we clear with where we are moving to? So, like, we want you to go next door. We, we want you to love your neighbors well collectively as a church, we want to love our neighbors well. The people that God has placed around us. That is our vision. And let me just put a little handle on it. I don't know if this will help you or not, but we want to help people see Jesus. Because we believe when they see Jesus, they're going to find community with other followers of Jesus and they will go out and engage this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, here's the deal. Everyone serves someone. Everyone serves someone. You either serve God, or you serve yourself, 
or you serve a boss or you serve a system or you serve a creditor, but everyone serves someone. And the reason vision is so important is because vision tells us where we are going to go. It defines for us where we are moving to. It does not tell us how we will get there. Because along the way, we're going to encounter things and people and obstacles in the road. And we're going to listen to the Spirit of God that is calling us to engage this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To love our neighbors, to love the people that God has placed around us you will encounter those red lights that make you come to a stop, that take your breath away as you follow Jesus. Things that you thought you would never have to experience. Difficult times, hard times. Times relationally where things are broken and not working. And the hope is that we would continue to follow Jesus um, last year, my wife is really good about this. But she takes food to our neighbors constantly. And the, the man who lives next door to us, his name is Willie. And she had taken him some cookies. And he just <laughs> loves my wife. He loves my kids and my family. And he came over one day when I was working out in the yard And he said, would it be okay, and I know this is kind of weird, but would it be okay if I gave your wife a Mother's Day gift? Because my mother has been gone for a long time, but she looks out for me, and she cares for me, and she brings food, and she checks to make sure I'm doing okay, and I would just love to give her a gift. I said, that would be great. So one afternoon, he shows up at our door, and he knocks on the door, and he comes right inside the entryway of our home and he says I appreciate what you do for me so much and I got you a card and a box of chocolates for Mother's Day and I'm sitting back here watching this and I thought oh man it's Mother's Day Um, I'm sitting back watching this and I'm thinking this is just beautiful. My wife did not give that gift so that she would get something in return. But she gave that grace to him, that gift. And she received back probably more than she could possibly ever And what Paul is saying is this grace that was given to me, I have been given the responsibility to steward it well. And I don't think I'm going to come to the end and God is going to say, well, Gary, why, why didn't you, why did you give grace to that person? I think the, the response is going to be, thank you, but I wish you had given that grace more freely. I wish you'd given people that grace more freely as I have done. And he says, verse 4, when you read this, 
you can perceive my insight into the mystery. This is the second time of four that he uses this word mystery. This mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He keeps describing this gospel, this message that the good news of Christ is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. He keeps describing it as a mystery. And mystery has a little bit different connotation in our world today than it did in theirs. Mystery for us is something that is dark and hidden and unable to be known. It's incomprehensible and inexplicable. But there's a slightly different nuance in the Greek language. It's mysterion. And while it is a secret, it is no longer closely guarded, but open and able to be known. It, it's like saying it's out there and anyone has access to it, but they not, might not fully grasp the full um, implications of it. See, and the question is like, how did they not get it? How did the sons not get it of, future, of the previous generations? I mean, Abraham was told, you're going to be the father of nations and everyone on earth is going to be blessed through you. Isaiah came and talked about this Messiah who is going to bring peace to this world. Jesus said, go into all the world and take the gospel to all men. Like, how do they not get that? How do they not get the far-reaching depth and implications of it? He says, well, it's a mystery. But mystery in this world is something that's out there but maybe not fully understood. A few weeks ago, my two sons who share a room had allowed their room to become a disaster zone. And it was just a wreck. And so my wife and I walked by the door on a couple of occasions and we said, hey, y'all gotta clean your room. And then the second day we walked by and it still wasn't clean. And we said, hey, y'all gotta clean your room. And the third day we were starting to get pretty frustrated. And I walked by the room, and I walked inside, and I said, hey, listen, listen, I want you to look at me. If you don't clean your room, and I said it slowly like this, if you don't clean your room, I'm going to clean it for you. They heard what I said, but that evening, there was still stuff everywhere. And so I said, hey, I want you all to sit on your bed. I'm going to clean your room for you. And I went and I got a 55-gallon trash bag out of the garage. And I came and I knelt down in the middle of the floor. And I began picking up toy after toy after toy, holding it in the air just so they could see it as they were watching for their bed as it went into the trash bag. See, I told them this truth, that if you don't clean it, I will. But this mystery was finally revealed the full implications when I set a trash bag in the center of the room and took like Santa Claus's sack and put it in the garage and said, y'all have to earn these back one at a time. We got bribed for the next like six years. (laughs) For Paul, there was this moment 
as he was journeying on the road to Damascus, where he was confronted with this mystery. This mystery, this Jew had known his entire life because he could quote the scriptures. He knew everything that God had said and had told them. He just didn't get the full implications. And then there's this moment where it hits him. And it was almost like that phone turned back on and said, hey, recalculating, make a U-turn. Recalculating, make a U-turn. And then Paul, who was so sure of everything in his life, finds himself walking out to meet with the very people he went to persecute and then going to the people that he said could have no part in God's plans and purposes in this world. Verse 7. Of this gospel, this gospel that's a mystery, this purpose he's been talking about, that People would be reconciled to God and people would be reconciled to one another, Jew and Gentile alike. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery? Hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, okay, here, as we engage the world, we engage not just individually, but we engage as the church because this church is going to be the vessel through which God's grace is imparted into this world. Through, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory that we would become people of reconciliation. That was Paul's purpose. Reconciling Jew and Gentile, breaking down that dividing wall we talked about last week, but also breaking down the wall that divides man from God. That we would be those reconcilers. And so as the church, as followers of Jesus, we become people of reconciliation as we steward God's grace. But listen, as we've been talking through this series, there is a risk of being a church. There is a risk in putting yourself out there. There is a risk in giving grace to people. And the risk is that you put yourself out there and you give to someone, they may not respond the way that you thought they would. They may take your gift and they may completely set it aside and not care one bit that you gave it. And so reconciliation makes the assumption that you are entering into a world of broken relationships. 
and where relationships have been broken down, there is always tension. And so we enter into the broken relationship, and in the broken relationship, I can promise you, you will find suffering, and you will find heartache, and you will find loss, and you will find hurt. And what happens as we give and we put ourselves out there and we make ourselves vulnerable and we are hurt by it, then the next time we encounter the opportunity to give of ourselves, we hold back. Because we've put ourselves out there and we got hurt or we got burned and we don't want to experience it again. See, suffering, heartache, we try to avoid because we want happiness and we want comfort. And while we strive for happiness, we are formed by stress. While we strive for happiness, we are formed by suffering. Um, back several years ago, you'll remember Biosphere 2 was a project in Arizona where scientists wanted to look at a closed ecological system and how it had the ability to maintain itself. And so they set up all of these different parts of the world, and they tried to recreate every environmental factor and force within all of these closed ecosystems. And something really interesting happened in this project, is randomly, throughout Biosphere 2, the trees began to fall over. And the scientists began to search and ask the questions, well, why is this happening? What's going on in a closed system? They discovered the one environmental factor they could not reproduce was the wind. See, it was the wind and the stress that it brought that strengthened the trees. And because of the lack of wind the stress they were under could not support the weight of the fruit that it was bearing. See, we strive for happiness, but it's in our suffering that we are formed. And we don't ever look at grace as something that God has given us, and we never look at grace as a form of, or or the difficult times, the difficult suffering, we never look at as God giving us grace. But here's what I've learned. The more I've been around people is when you look at people's stories and you hear people tell about their life, they don't just always point to the good times. They point to the really difficult times. And you'll hear them say things like, I would never want to go through that again. But the person I am today 
has been dramatically shaped and formed by what I went through? Is it possible that those difficult times are a way that God imparts his grace on us? And through those difficult times, we grow in a way in such that we are able and we are capable to step into the hurting and the hardships in other people's lives and give that grace to steward the grace that has been given us. And so I want to just talk just really practical for just a minute. How do you step into the mess in other people's lives? How do you step into the mess in our world and steward God's grace well? First of all, where you have wronged others, it requires repentance. It requires this act of humility. It requires humbly asking someone to forgive you for what you have done. It goes in to the relationship with the hope of reconciling it by repenting for apologizing. It may be you have to apologize for what you said. It may be you have to give back what was taken. It may be you have to humbly ask someone to overlook what you did because you cannot change it. Secondly, where you have been wronged by others, it requires forgiveness. See, when others hurt us, and this is, this is maybe one of the most difficult ones. When we have been wronged by others, it requires us to forgive. It requires us to let go of our rights. It requires you to let go of your right to be right. It requires you to let go of your right to, be, to get even. It requires you to let go of your right to see the other person hurt and suffer as you have. It's just to simply step back and say, I can't change it. I can never change what happens, but I will no longer hold this against you. I heard a story recently of a man named Michael Moore. Michael Moore in 1987 had his world turned upside down. One morning at work, he got a call from the sheriff. And his wife had been murdered, and they needed him to come home immediately. And although there was no evidence to place him at the scene of the crime, no murder weapon, no motive, and even the testimony of his three-year-old son saying, Daddy did not do it, Michael Morton was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. In one swoop, his life was ripped out of his hands. His son would come to visit twice a year, but as he grew older, he was no longer capable of seeing his father, only the man who killed his mother. Eventually, 18 years into the prison sentence, Michael's son legally changed his name. and said, I want no part of this name. 
And Michael describes this moment as the lowest point in his life. As he's laying in a prison cell, he begins to plot how he will escape and how he will kill the DA and the prosecutor who had wrongfully accused him. And during that time, he discovered something fascinating. He found out that he was really serving two life sentences. One for murder, which was pretty obvious. But the other one was a life chained to anger and hate and resentment that he could not get out of. And finally, at the end of this ordeal, Michael said, I had to make the decision to forgive these men. And lying in a prison cell, he made the choice that he would forgive, that he would not hold this over them any longer. And he says, for the first time in 18 years, I experienced freedom. It was 2011, and some attorneys had done some really hard work, and they were able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Michael Morton was innocent based on new technology with DNA evidence. And he was set free. 25 years of his life gone. 25 years, though, that shaped who he is today. 25 years that he can never get back. And a reporter with CNN asked him, do you blame these men? He said, yes. I blame them for what they did to me. But I forgive them. And the reporter said, how do you do that? And he said something that probably most of us know, but really struggle grasping. To be forgiven, you must forgive. See, that's letting go. That's forgiving someone. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, See, to forgive is to set the prisoner free and then realize it was you that was set free. Then finally, when others have been wronged, it requires a peacemaker. It requires someone to stand in between. And let me tell you, in our world, there are so many places where we need followers of Jesus to stand in between relationally, maybe maritally, maybe racially, politically. There are so many places that we need people of Christ to stand in the middle. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's not blessed are the peaceful. It's, it's blessed are the people that will stand in the middle and bring peace to those around them. So I want you to imagine just a second. 
what would it be like if our church began to go and engage this world with the gospel and steward it well to abundantly give the grace that God has given us to those around us to reconcile people to God and people to one another. When you came in this morning, you got this card. I want you to just take it out for just a second because these are just simple prayers for you this week. Where I have wronged others, it requires repentance. And the prayer is just simply humble me. Where others have wronged me, it requires... What does it require? Forgiveness, yes, sorry. I was thinking ahead a little far. It requires forgiveness. And the prayer is help me. And where others have been wronged, it requires a peacemaker. And the prayer is simply empower me. What I want you to do is my hope is this morning as we talk, there is a relationship, there is a person, there is a group of people that comes to your mind with one of these. And I want to just simply underline, underline that prayer and maybe write their name beside it or underneath it. And I want you to begin to pray this week for God to help you be a reconciler in relationships in this world. And so I want to pray for us right now and just simply ask God, wherever this message hits you, whatever relationship needs to be made right, if it's with you and Jesus, I hope you would do that today. But if it was someone else, whatever that prayer, prayer, humble me, help me, empower me. Humble me, help me, empower me. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where this message hits home for different people. But my hope and my prayer, Father, is that it transforms and changes who we are in Christ as we follow you. And Father, I pray for the broken, fractured, splintered relationships that we have caused, that have been done to us, or Father, some that we've had no part in. But that, Father, you would give us the Spirit to help us as we reconcile relationships, as we help to restore the brokenness in this world the mystery of the gospel that God is reconciling people to himself and each of us to one another and so Father this is our simple prayer today humble me help me empower me humble me help me empower me And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.
if we could help you this morning in any way, whether give your life to Christ, to make something right with someone else, or just simply prayers of humble me, help me, empower me. We're going to have our shepherds and staff around the auditorium. We would love to help you in any way we could. So come while we stand and sing.